Warfan best friends and coolish knights, and welcome to the 26th episode of Murders with Mertens. I am your host, Joe, and this is a podcast about horror, super meta slashers, dark comedies, body horror, the horror adjacent thrillers, the psychologically terrifying, scary films in general. Each episode, I sit down with a guest and discuss one of their favorite scary films so we can gush about everything that makes it just so damned cool. Viewers, thank you for the support. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. It all helps to get the word out and bring some much-needed love to this little podcast. Audio listeners. The show is also available on podcast services around the world, like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So don't forget to leave a rating when you stop by. Thank you. Uh, but enough about all that housekeeping. We need to continue on with the series themed around Scream. And to that end, I have the privilege of welcoming back to the show the legendary Mark Freeman. Mark, how the hell are you? All right. Busy day. Yeah. Going to <laughs> my experience of this film you know well yeah it's uh I definitely i just need to put a little caveat i'm not gonna class this as one of my favorites <laughs> there's there's a certain cameo that yeah yeah that's okay uh there's still some fun stuff to be had in this movie um no no not by any stretch but uh yes uh tonight's topic is 2000 scream 3 directed by wes craven and written by aaron krueger uh who would go on to write the u.s version of the ring decent decent uh you know reimagining of a movie there or redo or remake or whatever you want to call it uh and unfortunately multiple transformer films and also mark's favorite film of last year top gun maverick yeah i mean they've, i, I guess silence means consent you know, from the transformers right oh, that makes sense yeah yeah that said decent step up from those films for sure uh, we're going to agree to disagree there <laughs> but uh yeah yeah um this film uh kevin williamson was uh kind of tied up uh around the time that they needed to start on this one and he had like story elements that they used but they had to bring on a different writer um it shows it's kind of different uh the camp levels have been boosted by quite a bit in this film. Um, I, I've seen this film again twice here in the matter of a month. And I, I think like the subtitle should be people get hit in the head and fall down a lot um, because that seems to happen a lot in this film. <laughs> Mark is nodding his head for those audio listeners. <laughs> it's, it's almost like they're in Smallville. Yeah, there's a lot of getting clocked over the head for sure. Yes, yes. And then it was around the same time period. So can you blame him for borrowing a little bit? Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, yeah, uh, Mark, uh, what's your history with this film? Well, I mean, I watched it back in the day and I watched all of the other screams back in the day. Um, I remember enjoying the scream films, etc. And when you were... Uh, when you were like, oh, does anyone want to do any claim any of the Scream films? I said, oh, I'll claim the one with Kevin Smith in it. I might have had a bit of a mix-up with my uh, thinking here. Yeah. What with also the scene in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, I was thinking that there was actually in this, maybe 
But then it shows, turns out they're in it for 20 seconds with like two lines. They have more dialogue and more screen time in the bloody Drake music video. <laughs> 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 and they do in this sodding film. So I watched this entire film, having not recently watched Scream or Scream 2. So very lost. Oh, like, wow. Wow. Um, again, boy, you need some recap Zoom videos, Mark. Um. Yeah, we were doing Zoom last night. I'm getting a wood dove. And then that went quite late. And then when I got up this morning, I had to do, there was some stuff at work. That I, had to do. So I had to really rush to get this in well i appreciate yeah, the I effort sir i appreciate it do, uh, any of the pre-prep work that might have been a bit helpful so i didn't spend most of the movie like hey, yeah. what, what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> where are jay and silent bob i can swear they're in it. oh they're there they're there but uh you know yeah not you for particularly long yeah yep yep but uh yeah yeah i think we should jump in here man um we begin with uh cotton weary he's now the host of a successful talk show and uh he's just driving home from work talking to his agent and he's got another call coming in and well it's um his conversation with the agent is all about this bit part that he has in the new stab film, which are of course the films within the film that are based on the Woodsboro murders. And, uh, you know, he's not very happy about the situation. He'd like something a little meatier, but, uh, another call's coming in. So he's got to let his agent go. And it seems like a Ron number and he's got some fun banter and he's a little flirtatious with this lady, but no, it turns out it's fucking ghost face. What's what's, but I mean, what's to play it? Like, hey, it's a wrong number. What are the chances that you're anywhere near each other in America? <laughs> Just some random call connection. What's the point of talking to us? She's probably 3,000 miles away from it. It very well could be. It very well could be. But I, I also think it's just setting him up as, yeah, he's still the same smarmy old asshole, right? Um, so, yes, it turns out it's Ghostface. Like, revealed as the bad guy in, like I can't, I can't, I well, he, he was the person who originally went to prison uh falsely accused of the murder of sydney's mother and then uh when it turns out that it was billy and stew he was released uh and then in the second film he's trying to get his 15 minutes of fame gail is trying to stage this awkward uh interview between the two of them that's more like an ambush and, uh, you know, after the events of the second movie, he gets a little bit of fame and notoriety. He and Sydney apparently go and do a Diane Sawyer interview. And, uh, you know, he manages to parlay this over the next couple of years into a, um, into a successful talk show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's something on the order of like an afternoon televised talk show, like Mari Povich or something like that. Uh, Mario will come back later in this film. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, the voice, um, demands to know the whereabouts of Sidney Prescott and, uh, cotton. I'm not even sure that he necessarily would know, but he refuses to participate. And so Ghostface uh, vows to kill his girlfriend, Christine, because he's actually in their house. Um, it's a fun little setup because, of course, she's doing the stupid trope of blonde in the shower while the killer stalks. And this is something the these films have commented on multiple times as sent up and just gone ahead and done as well. 
but they uh don't get any nudity like it's got so places yes. that it's not actually it's a it's tasteful yes <laughs> again they, well you don't really see anything like it's just the thing to your shout you know mm-hmm. like it, it's doing it but it's not doing the back the crappy like oh we just need some tits in the, at this point in the film because nah. it's gonna get more eyes on it or whatever like it was yeah that's something yeah, they don't really do in these films and that's 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 appreciated it's uh so yeah. ultimately uh yes cotton so you get dressed yeah she, she she's getting ready for an evening with way, cotton but her feet are now wet she's probably one of those people that steps right out of the shower onto the mat instead of drying her feet before getting onto the mat and so it's all just extra you know wet and goopy and there's water everywhere yeah you know it's like several minutes later but that's set up for another scene coming up later so in the meantime uh cotton is racing through traffic smashing into other cars and stuff you know doing the action-packed race against time exactly they're well they're dealing probably with the uh the pileup that's caused the traffic jam that he's in you know like a mile down the road right um so yes um We've got um, when the police doesn't tell you anything like, no, I think he's more concerned about just getting there and doing something himself because he's got to be, you know, macho man of action. I don't know. But um, again, another really stupid, like driving like that. The chances of him actually making that, making it there to actually do anything is mm -hmm. ridiculous. Probably pretty slim. Yeah. And at one point, he's then forced to drive. Like he was going to be going to go drive down another. So he's even then having to go round the the wrong way round. Like, yeah. <laughs> and while he's doing this, we're cutting back and forth, you know, between him and uh, the house, where we get that nice little close up yeah. of the cut phone line. And um, yes, now we get one of the most two thousand bits of this film, where the stereo in Cotton's office starts blaring some Creed because you know they were a thing back then. Um, there's a Creed poster later on as well. Oh yes. They are peppered throughout this film. They also get us on in the end credits. Um, so yeah, uh, Ghostface uh, uses the new voice changer for this film to great effect. Uh, he pretends to be cotton. Uh, and then she really thinks that it is him fucking around in a scream, get up, uh, or stab, get up, I guess. Uh, let's, you know, um, because meta, uh, so, like that voice changer. Like that is some serious technology. Oh yeah, did yeah. Not exist at the time. Not at all. Like, Barely exists now, but at the time, at the time, we thought, yeah, yeah, that could be possible. Sure. Tone and like breath and like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the voice changer in the first two films was, you know, kind of a miracle enough that you would get that specific voice and not hear any of the rest of the person using its voice. But, uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, she locks herself in cotton's office and Ghostface pretends to be him. And well, it's, it's a cluster. Um, and it turns out, no, very, very much not Ghostface. Uh, you know, she gives him a good kick in the face. Um, 
again, uh, people get hit in the head a lot in this movie. It, it happens. Uh, I not blame her though. It no, sounds like it was no. a game that they had done. Like he's done some stuff like this in the past, except but it sounds like it's extreme. more the real deal that she's getting here. And uh, yes, uh, he but rushes home. Again, it's established that he's called something. Yeah, he's he's fucked around with stab rank, and, you know, and she's yeah. Like, and she's so, getting that this is a little bit more extreme. Yes, he's, he's coming into the room. She's oh yeah, she's she's fighting for uh, fighting for her life at this yeah. point. So he he rushes home, uh, only for her to think that he was behind the attack. And uh, also, there's a nice little touch that his talk show is playing on the TV in the background while they're uh, talking here. Uh, and she's got him, you know, uh, at arm's length with a golf club. Um, and uh, as he tries to reason with her, uh, Ghostface comes up behind her and stabs her in the back. And Just, yeah, in this situation, backing out of a door is such a smart idea, you know. Like, we have, you know, yeah, like, I don't think she's a fan you. of horror films at all. Uh, because I think she was just completely convinced it was him, maybe that he had just finally gone too far. But uh, yes, she gets stabbed in the back. And uh, then, uh, yes, uh, Cotton, who's, you know, pretty roughed up at this point, you know, Ghostface is like, you should have told me where Sydney was. And we get the title card, um, which is definitely evolved a little bit from, you know, the four years prior in the original film where it was super 90s. Now it's super 2000s. Um, and uh, just cut to Sid. And her big dumb dog coming home from a walk on a dusty trail. And uh, they've got locks and security systems aplenty. It's clear but that she's got herself like a bit of a fortress. Four foot high, if not, like, not even that, is it? It's like, you can just hop over that fence. Yeah, well, that's meant more for keeping vehicles out. Yeah, unless you're just going to ram it. It's the, the whole point of a fence like that is to keep... a big lock on that bloody gate like, where you're just going to go... I no, mean, it, it's it's along the top, which has probably got sensors on, but it's not keeping anyone out. Like they're just stepping over the bloody thing. Well, again, <laughs> that kind of security <laughs> is meant to keep you know most people out. The people that really want to come in are going to bypass any security system. They're going to come crashing through that house. Uh, you know, it's just like people that have all yeah, sorts of security systems and like locks and everything like, else. But if they have big, massive patio doors or whatever, somebody's just going to throw a chair through it. You know. Um, but I could have just done with it being a bit higher that fence. It seemed a yeah. bit pointless having a secure fence at that high. But. Well, it, it's clear that she's living in seclusion here and she's got her little fortress and she also works for a women's crisis hotline, uh, under some type of a pseudonym. Um, and they just leave her from there. That's all. We, we just get to know where she is. Um, but we cut to Gail giving a lecture at a college in LA. And Gail has awful bangs, awful, awful bangs. And it's all anybody talks about in this film uh, when they think back to it. But there's good reason that that's not good here. Um, sorry, Gail. I mean, it was it was the time I didn't even really notice. <laughs> Everyone's just... hair was shit. Everyone's hair was a bit. Like, yeah, it's well, a lot of the fashion choices. It's it's all very 2000s in this film. It's it's a look. Um but yes, she's giving a lecture about, you know, her career and everything. And there's, you know, some people in the audience that, you know, want to call her out on shit. But, uh, 
Yeah, she's she's used to this. So she wraps up. She's informed that there's a detective there to see her. Uh, we're introduced to Mark Kincaid, uh, who informs her that Cotton was murdered the uh, evening before. And, um, yeah, he's got some information. Have his he girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> she's kind of, like, left out of a lot of that conversation. And we'll, we'll uh, come, circle back to that because there's some things I'd like to bring up with that. Um but, uh, yeah, uh, he was murdered the evening prior and he, you know, being that she's like one of the foremost experts on the Woodsboro murders, uh, he wanted to bounce some stuff off of her. And I love this whole, I swear on my Pulitzer prize, which I plan to win one day detective, uh, when she promises not to say anything. That's, that's cute. Um, so like, yeah, let's just go and talk to some, you have, yeah, I'm working with the police. She wants to work with her. It's like, what? Huh? Yep. Ask yep. questions. Yes. Like, consult or whatever. Not like, uh, yeah, I find mm, yeah. that much access to the case and the case files. And well, that. especially <laughs> that much of like a tabloid style journalist, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know that you really want somebody super involved like that. But um, there was a photo of Sydney's mother, Maureen, that was left at the scene. Um, you know, of course, she recognizes her, even though it's a photo from like 25, 30 years ago, because, you know, she studied this woman, you know, for years at this point. Right. Um, so then we cut to Sid finding out about Cotton uh, and his death from the news. And she has a little freak out. Kind of sounds like maybe she drops her bag of dog food as well. And that's it. They just cut away from her. It's it's super she short and quick. That she's like a helpline caller. Yeah, yeah. Special. She's got this crisis hotline that she uh, answers, and that that's what she's yeah. doing with herself these days. Hey, good for her. That's pretty noble. Uh, and then we cut to some red right hand because you have to have the Nick Cave and the Bad Seed Son in one of these films. Uh, if you don't, it's not really a screen movie, right? Um, and it's like this weird, like alternate version of the song with slightly different lyrics. I don't know if it was recorded just for this or what I've never looked into it. I like it as much as the original, but Hey, you, you got to have some red right hand. Uh, and that's to go over the top of the uh, news media descending on the movie studio where stab three is being shot. And there's all these shots of the set being super locked down. So that scene was just like, what they're just trying to interview security guards that are trying to push them. Like, <laughs> I know security this, this is very two thousands. This is very two thousands. It's just there to show you that the media is here. Um, yeah, it's just running at security guards like uh-huh it's like <laughs> yeah i know i know it's 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 a thing um and here we are introduced to the set which is now being shut down and uh roman the director played by the first ex mr jennifer garner um He's arguing with the producers of the film, Lance Henriksen and Roger fucking Corman. Uh, yeah. What a legend of schlocky movies from the seventies and eighties. Um, but, uh, this is where, uh, you know, he wants to get the film back on track 
And we had great commentary from Corman that was super, super relevant at the time because this was out uh, not even a year after the Columbine uh, high school shootings. And uh, the, uh, everything in the media, you know, particularly conservative media, because Fox News was just getting started and up and running around then. Um, but uh, yeah, there was so much talk about violence in media and its effect on people and so on and so forth. Because, because you got to have a boogeyman, right? The actual thing that, you know, made that possible that you could easily fix. Yeah, no, no, we're not doing that, Mark. No, no, that's that. That's not a possibility. No, we're not going to talk about the guns, but hey, we'll talk about anything else that we can fucking play. The the violent movies, you know, are more responsible for Columbine than the guns. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, uh, and I find it funny. The the two producers are torn. You've got Lance Henriksen's character, uh, Milton. Uh, I can't remember Roger Corman's character's name, but uh, uh, Corman's more on the side of, hey, we don't want this look for our studio and our film. And Henriksen's more of a, I've shot, you know, uh, horror films for 30, 40 years, and we've never had crazies like this. It's never been an issue. Um but uh, yeah, yeah, it's again very, very meta. Who was, who was the killers in the second? Was it copycats in the second one? It was. It was Billy Loomis's mother and uh, a psycho that she picked up on a message board um, who wanted to so just get famous for doing this about a murder which has already been copycatted and then it then surprised that there might be someone yeah. else copycatting and you know because it's super famous and everyone involved with it's like massive celebrities then mm-hmm. yeah there's cracks later about how the original <laughs> actors like, uh tori spelling but... and david schwimmer didn't want to come back and that's why certain characters were recast uh namely sydney um but yeah uh again very very uh timely they literally say at this point don't they yeah when the actors are hanging out here in a moment yes uh yeah the the, at this point yeah the the cast you got jenny mccarthy and um uh i i can't remember the actress's name last name is morton who plays uh sydney they're just hanging out on the front steps of uh one of the um houses and just talking about the situation, theorizing who the killer could be. Um, and the, the new actress playing Sydney is definitely taking it the hardest. The rest of them are a little bit more jaded. Um, and then we get Gail arriving on set with her awful bangs and a camera in her purse. But, but the Sydney one, and they established, was she won some kind of competition? Well, not so much that there was a competition, just that there were so many actresses vying for this part. And she was the one that ultimately got the role. Okay. It's no, I thought it was like made it I thought they made some comments about a competition or something. I mean ultimately uh, yeah. that kind of stuff is, but uh yeah. It, she there were like fifty thousand people auditioning for this role and she was the one that was selected. So mm-hmm. uh it's it's a big deal for her, but also, you know, at what kind of cost. Um so yes, Gail's got this uh camera in her purse. Also, oh I'm sorry, God establishes like establishes her as this is a bit of, and they do say like from the middle of nowhere or somewhere like she wasn't mm-hmm. part of the thing yeah like so that's why i thought it was more a competition because like it's from somewhere like so hey here's someone that suddenly got a lot of work to get 
get into being in this. Like, well, it's revealed a bit later like, how she actually got this role, but yeah, uh, I know, I know. He <laughs> starts putting her as, oh, is she on the up and up? Like, um, oh, and there's plenty of scenes that make you question. That's one. Th yeah, these films are great with the misdirection and, you know, throwing you that red herring and making you really think that it could be, you know, somebody who it's not. But, um, yeah, as Gail's walking across the set here, she runs into Jennifer, uh, played by Parker Posey, who uh, fangirls out at first because she played Gail in the first two stab films. And uh, then also, like. Hey, some gossip journalist, like, please come on to our clothes. You know, just walk, just be allowed to walk oh. straight. Well, she's not clothes. invited there. She just kind of bullshitted her way in. But uh, yeah, she's not a fan of Jennifer's because of her portrayal of her. And uh, Jennifer, at the end of the day, not so much a fan of Gail just because uh, she's never returned any calls ever or wanted anything to do with her. Uh, so yes, Gail is annoyed. Um, and then it's immediately revealed that Dewey is working as a sort of a consultant for the film and as an assistant to Jennifer. And he's back to being pissed at Gail. Cause that's, you know, kind of their shtick, right? They, they love, they fight, they, you know, but uh, can you blame him? Uh, Cause she consistently does shitty stuff to him. But uh, yes, uh, there's Dewey. Uh, they talk briefly about the killings before Gail is thrown off the set because as soon as uh, the producers see her, they're like, what, what the fuck's Gail Weathers doing here? Get her the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like, this is just going to completely fuck this film. Like, the number of uh -huh. shit that she's going to be able to write having had access to our set and. Well, yeah, that's gonna cause us. Yeah, and here's your moment, Mark. Here's your moment. Enter Jay and Silent Bob. They're on a studio tour, and I think this basically confirms the scream takes place in the Viewisk universe. And as she's thrown past them, uh, Jay's like, "Connie, fucking Chun. Hey, Connie, how's Maury?" <laughs> yeah, it's um, as I say, you know. More lines and more screen time in the bloody Mate Drake music video than this. Uh, yeah. I was like, they're coming back, right? They're coming back. I, I could have sworn. <laughs> no, instead, you just get kind of a comedic slasher film. There's the, you, there's the scene in Jay and Silent Bob Strike back, which is mm -hmm. kind of, you know, so I, I was. With Suzanne in the costume, mind. and yeah. But there was the two parts, and, you know, then they ended up on set, and there would be a bit more of their involved. No. Nope, that's it. Nope, that's not at all. Jay and uh, apparently got um, they weren't you on the pre-show. You were kind of implied that they were filmed at the same time. They weren't actually, so it was no. Nah. Um, I mean, I remember uh, Wes Craven's. Okay, I, I remember Wes Craven's cameo and uh, filming a scream movie in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And yeah, then you get Suzanne and the costume and all that. But again, it was so this yeah. one was the arse. He was asked to do it. I think they got paid. Twelve hundred dollars to, you know, like the SAG minimum, right? And then they uh, sh show up on set, and they get uh, they in their tra they're given trailers each um, for their one day of work, and there's a t-shirt and three hundred dollars per diem. Jason nice. Hughes comes in, <laughs> comes out to get the trailer. It's like got three hundred dollars and a t-shirt. Can we do can we do cameos on every horror movie? <laughs> like we got our own new star in the movies, like. Make more money, like 
just making our own film. Put, put three hundred dollars and a t-shirt in my hand. <laughs> yeah and and i love gail flipping him off and uh you know him just taking it as her uh having interest in them yeah (laughs) uh but yeah it's 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 such a fun cameo yeah uh and then we're watching the whole of this film and we're gonna see the podcast i don't know i think we're gonna get some decent content out of this still um oh god uh bless your heart mark (laughs) Back to Sid's compound where dad's delivering groceries because uh, they didn't bring him back for the second film. Um, but yeah, here he is. Um, and they, you know, talk about uh, her mom and he's definitely concerned about her isolation, you know, and she's like, Hey, the like a parent should be, but also, I mean, people have tried to kill her twice. I, I would be understanding. What the fuck's he doing there as well? Like he lives in this town and then driven to wherever she is. No one knows where the fuck she is. Like the first thing you're gonna do is follow her fucking dad. You would think. <laughs> you would think visiting her is like the biggest risk. Well, it's never finally established how the killer gets a hold of her phone number, so you never know. Uh, they have their theories throughout this film, but they never and come right out and like say how it happens. On the regular as well. So it wasn't, he didn't even need to see that time he bloody followed him. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a possibility. Why are you off the grid hiding and having your dad drive from the town where everything went? Well, on? you know, they didn't have FaceTime back then, Mark. So, you know, face-to-face visits were a little bit more of uh, the, the standard. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, he's concerned, of course, and you know she appreciates his concern, but she's fine with being as isolated as she is because that's kind of the point. And then we cut to her on the couch dreaming about her dead mother haunting her in a dream within a dream, and I am a giant sucker for dreams within dreams, especially in horror films where you know somebody thinks they've woken up and then, nope, nope, you're still dreaming and it's still horrible. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, I, this this is again uh, nitpicking yeah this movie quite a bit because <laughs> i've had my enjoyment so far and it was 20 seconds long <laughs> um but then later on the killer knows about this like well it's not that, so much that he knows about uh her you know, dreaming of her mother and so on is just, he's fucking with her because his whole MO is tied up in the mother. Um, but then it's also very like, seems very similar to the dreams. So I'm not sure that he hadn't like planted some audio and wasn't actually like, <laughs> playing I, that one. I, I get the feeling that this would be too inconvenient of a trip for him to uh, go and fuck with her at her compound. Uh, you know, have to and put some speaker in somewhere, you know, that you can then. I suppose. You can, you've got the highest tech, you know. I, voice, yeah, that voice changer is pretty top notch. I gotta say, straight into that bloody speaker and play whatever he wants for it. <laughs> yeah, but she finally snaps awake from the other dream. Uh, you know, where uh, her mom turns into Ghostface and bursts through the window, and the window's fine. It's and we're, we we just we have all these weird cutaways from Sydney at her house where it's just like it, it's almost like you're in the middle of having a conversation with somebody and 
there's not a natural end to the conversation. It's just that the other person just walks away. It kind of has that feeling to me in the way that we cut away from Sydney. No, no, no. What what I'm saying is, no, just what I'm saying is the way that we leave the scene is like having somebody walk away from a conversation without a natural end to it. It's, it's just odd. Um, but, um, disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. And then we're in the next day and, uh, Sarah Darling, who is played by, uh, Jenny, Jenny McCarthy, uh, she's pulling up really quick to the production office. She's supposed to have a meeting with Roman, uh, to run lions or whatever, something to do with her character. And, um, she pops into the office and it's pretty empty. Um, and she okay, gets a phone at this point, like when he gets like when he bumps into the other like, oh, we're leaving, everyone else has left. You just nope out of that building immediately. Yeah. Like you go, well, well so far there's the only been one killing. I mean two. <laughs> you know, it's again, there's only the one killing that they're concerned about because I mean, fuck uh, Cotton's girlfriend, apparently. Um but, uh, yes, the, the phone rings on Roman's desk and it's him calling to say he's running late. He's stuck on the highway, but he'll be there in 10 minutes, but he wants to run lines with her in the meantime. And she's pissed because her character is the second to die in the movie. And, uh, you know, she barely has any time or lines at all. Um, also pissed about the you know situation of her character, because of course she's got to be naked and she's going to do dumb stuff that people do when they're naked in horror films. And, you know, she's, she's not exactly happy. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Roman keeps going on and on and it's very soon revealed that the killer or that the caller rather is actually Ghostface, and she's about to be. Yeah, yeah. And uh ultimately, uh she's about to be killed off early in this film as well. Again, as the second kill, oops, I mean third. Uh, they they're they're trying really hard to uh go into the kills are happening in the order of the script thing. Um but yes. And I mean, I know it's horror movies, but you know, and running up the stairs like that panic whatever. Oh yeah. Yeah, because she to a room well, first, before she does that, before she does that, she walks out to the front door and she sees the uh, shadow of somebody on the door coming in and she freaks out thinking it's the killer. But then she goes into the room with all the, you know, 37 ghost face costumes and um, in a row. Um, and uh, of other things as well. That wasn't the only place she could have hidden. Like, no, no, not at all. Costumes she could have had at hide. And, and then it, it becomes. No, let's go stand. Let's go hide in the thing where, where I've checked like three of these costumes are actually costumes, and I'm just going to be there because clearly that's not the easiest hiding place for this person anyway. Oh, yeah, got it. Yeah, and then it becomes very clear I'm as she's hiding. Of armor like Scooby Doo for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, that would have been fun. Uh, but then it becomes clear that the uh, silhouette that she saw was the fucking security guard coming to shut off the lights and lock up. So if she had just gone to the door, she would have been fine. Uh, again, stupid yeah. horror movie tropes and stupid horror movie uh, he characters. He himself as well. Like, he does so... Yeah, it, any uh, anybody left? Turn off the lights, yeah. we're locking up. Yes! I know, please, I... That would have been so simple. Yes. No. Now no, that I'm doesn't happen. Hide 
amongst the killer effect. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the killer. And of course, the real ghost face pops out from the line of ghost faces and uh, kind of pushes the whole rack and yeah. Across and sees the shoes. Yeah, they always have to do the step down with the boots. Yeah, that's that's classic ghost face. Coming to it later as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and he chases her around the office, and uh, you know they she keeps grabbing prop weapons uh you know that are like a rubber knife and uh some other stuff that are having no real effect on him and uh ultimately yeah he throws her through uh the glass on a door and then stabs her in the back and she's done it's yeah not not much way fight. the glass it looked like that would have bloody cut her stomach open anyway but yeah uh, you don't see any of that but he, yeah, basically, he finishes it off. And then you go in and there's no glass. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, no, you didn't get killed that way. Because, no, they need to kill her by stabbing her as opposed to. Yep. Uh, having the so, glass take her out or whatever. Yeah. And I seem to remember it was the glass, but apparently not. No, he finishes her off with no. a knife in the back. Um, so no, there's clearly no blood. I, I did check. There's clearly no nothing. Like, she wasn't actually. Didn't Although like there is a shot of the door him. later on with just blood running down from the glass on down. That, um, so I that, don't know. That, Probably that, a combination that, of the two factors. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then we cut to Gail and Dewey at a restaurant waiting for their coffee. And they're just kind of talking things out. And it's revealed that she hung out with Dewey in Woodsboro during his recovery. But eventually just kind of left him behind to continue her career because she got bored. Well, no, 60 got, minutes like, too. <laughs> yeah. Big offers to go, we go on big, big shows, but... which did not ultimately work out for her. But, uh, yeah. And he's they bitter, but he's bitter because of like it. He just buggered off with no, re- you know, no reason. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, he's definitely bitter about the situation and uh, yeah. holds a grudge. Um, and, uh, now they get down to brass tacks after they get their coffee. Uh, Dewey confesses to Gail that a woman called uh, the Woodsboro PD claiming to work for Stab 3 and wanting access to their file on Sid, which uh, you know they denied. And then later on, the station was broken into and uh, their uh, records room was ransacked. But Dewey had uh, smartly removed Sid's file ahead of time to make sure that nobody would be able to get access. So... so how was just was he still just because yeah he's it's a small town and he's still got his in with the uh the people that work there um that's exactly how this played out because then suddenly he's there you know just now a consultant on a film you know but Mm -hmm. it's but huh yeah. How, like yeah no like the, the oh i i agree he that. never should have been able to take that himself the as biggest file in the town's history right exactly you know, but um oh yeah yeah just remove just you know yep but uh yeah so uh he squirreled that, that away who knows? That that part's never revealed. But uh, yeah, uh, so we know that the killer didn't get any information from there, but we know that somebody was starting to look into things. Um, and 
yeah, we just cut right from there over to Jennifer having a freak out uh, at her house about the cast being picked off because she's supposed to be next. Um, and uh, also Gail was following Dewey on his way back to her house. Um, this is where it's revealed that, um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, Putty reveals to Gail and Dewey that there has been the second murder, actually a third, but again, they still want it to be second because they really want the killings to follow the script. Uh, Gail's shocked to find that Dewey is living in a trailer on Jennifer's property. Uh, apparently she likes having him around. He's her rock, etc. Uh, and then, uh, fucking mention, like, why if you, again, like she's got this beautiful Hollywood mansion, like. She's never going to want a bloody shitty looking airstream parked in the bloody front of the car. <laughs> I don't know. Those airstreams are pretty dope. Those are classic, man. Um, but yes, uh, he's living there. And then uh, Gail and Dewey go to take off and do some other uh, investigating. And uh, Dewey's trying to give some orders to Putty. Uh, I don't know why I keep referring to him by his character's name on Seinfeld. It's just going to be what it's going to be. Um, but uh, Putty tries to put Dewey in his place because, uh, in, according to him, he's just another Hollywood hanger honor and not the real security guy. Um, Fair, fair. Um, it's his job. He's being paid to really protect it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just kind of hanging out. Yeah. Valid response, I think, for a bodyguard yeah. of like, and now oh, we've got this other person. He's always, Toes are being oh, stepped on. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got Kincaid and his partner, uh, discussing how these things usually go in the movies. And that's where Gail shows up. And uh, Mark Kincaid uh, reveals that the killer left another photo of Marine Prescott and uh, that ultimately there were three it's versions of the script out for everyone to keep as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They're all marked with copy. But yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. Like, hey, here's some free handouts of evidence. Yep. Uh, and then. um yeah, uh, there's another photo, and there were three versions of the script, so they have three possible victims coming up next. Um, and this is where the detectives go back to the studio, and they question Roman because he was supposed to have a meeting with Sarah, according to Sarah's roommate, um, you know, right at the time that she was killed. And he's like, I never had a meeting with her. And, you know, he denies everything, and they, well, they take him down to the station for questioning. Um, and then before they leave... Kincaid asks to borrow Dewey's phone uh, because his battery is dead. And throwing a massive amount of suspicion suddenly on him. Yes, yes. And that'll come back later um, for sure. Um, and then Sid, back at her house, she gets uh, a crisis call from a woman who claims to uh, be her mother and uh, demanding that Sid turns on the news and we get, you know, the news story about yet another killing on uh, the stab three set. And when she turns off the phone, the voice changes over to Ghostface, and uh, she quickly grabs a gun and there's nobody around. You see, I bet you also, when it cuts back to the phone, you see it's on the home line, not the work line. Yeah. Well, so. Yep. So th she is absolutely being fucked with to the point where um, she's done. She's done. She's coming out of hiding, you know, which we'll find out shortly. Um, but uh, yeah, we cut back to Jennifer's house where Putty's patrolling the grounds. And uh, we've got the remaining Stab 3 cast uh, along with Dewey. Yeah. Why don't you just go and get on a plane to Europe? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you that convinced that they're going to start? Yeah. Are, are you convinced that uh, production's going to start up again? Out with where all these other murders are happening. Like the location, right. you know, let me go make me put myself closer to the fucking murder. I think she like, probably has going. the funds. Um, yeah, uh, piecing out would have been an acceptable alternative. It's been two weeks in Italy. Let, let yeah. everyone get murdered. Yeah. Set of this film, <laughs> you have a nice little trip to Italy or something. Of course, that could be a great excuse to have a scream film set, you know, uh, on the Amalfi Coast. Why not? <laughs> um, but yes, uh, the remaining actors from uh, Stab Three, they're uh, hanging out at Jennifer's house, kind of commiserating. Um, and uh, yeah, Tom's a little drunk. He's the actor who's playing Dewey. Uh, Gail shows up and she's kind of snooping around the property, peering through the window. She sees uh, Dewey and Jennifer, you know, being a little cozier than she would like. And she over. There's like they're partying. Like it kind of feels like they live, like they're all living like, again. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of implied that there's like, you know, maybe a little something going on, maybe not, at least she's suspicious of it, but, um, yeah, yeah. They're a little cozier than she would like with like three other, like the security, like everyone else as well. And like, yeah, but, uh, yeah, she overhears, um, she overhears Dewey talking about her, you know, both the good and the bad. Uh, and that's when putty finds her crawling around outside the house and uh brings her inside good security guard yes actually doing his job um so actually she was coming there to tell them that roman was released from custody and that the calls from him uh to sarah in his office came from a cloned cell phone uh she also brings up how they can't find any info on sid's mom from the time period where the photos were taken and uh doing gail realized oh sorry Two, you know, there's a two-year period where, where there's nothing but, like, mm-hmm. people have crawled through this woman's life. And they've the never bothered to dive any so, deeper into this, yeah. Why there was a missing two years there. Like, maybe that's got some importance, you know, like, yeah. hey, let's, you know, do some things and check, yeah. It was the 70s. Everybody's got a couple of gap years there. Um, so, yes, like doing written books on this. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, people making careers out of it. The people making films on it, like the number of researchers that must have really looked into this woman's life. I mean, I guess they didn't think it was that important. I don't know. But uh, yeah, Dewey and Gail realized that Sid's mom's and photo it, 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 was. Point, it also then sounds like being presented to the characters sounds like new information to them that there's the two years been missing as well. No one's like, oh yeah, we always wondered about that or what? It, like, nope, nope. This is brand new. Of- brand new. I think they were more concerned about her gruesome murder, um, you know, and not so much that she might have anything to do with her own murder. Um, but yeah, um, this is where, uh, a few moments ago when, um, you know, they were looking at this new, uh, publicity shot of Jennifer's, uh, portraying Gail, they realized this photo was taken in the same place as one of Marine Prescott's photos. These photos are from the studio's back lot. Uh, you know, dun, dun, dun. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Also that's. Like suddenly, like what the fuck with the detective? Like, certainly with all the stuff that you know, he's like how much he's into his films, and like it was established later on of like you know, like even I would probably recognize 
half of the streets on back lots or whatever. Like, you know, there was a sort of like you wouldn't recognize the maybe, maybe not. The like, oh, come on, you've seen them because they've got like they just reskid it. The, you, you I don't know, it them. looks like the outside of an apartment building, Mark. It's I don't know. I think it's just because the shot is conveniently lined up to be exactly the same as the other one. And that that's where we're going with this, I guess. Uh, we've got putty back outside. He's still, you know, doing his job, except in the most obnoxious way, uh, just barging into Dewey's airstream there, stealing his spare change. Point I was making there, though. Actually, yeah, we were saying like in general, like other backlots or whatever. No, actually, they're they're freaking on that backlot. They're walking down that bloody street every day, and they don't recognize it in a flipping photo that uh, that's left on a dead body. It's not again. Like it looks like the outside of any apartment building. Go, Wait a second, those buildings look exactly like this photo that I'm holding in my hand and giving out to every person I meet. Well, see, that's how it's just, you know, convenient enough then that we have Dewey and Gale to save the day. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we've got Putty again, continuing to patrol the grounds, except he's being extra nosy with Dewey's trailer. Uh, he gets a phone call from Dewey, uh, and as he's, uh, you know, poking through the trailer, he's stealing his spare change, being an asshole to him on the phone. And then it's revealed, nope, it was actually Ghostface with the voice changer pretending to be Dewey just to distract him enough to knife him and uh, hit him over the head with the frying pan a couple of times. Oh, yep. I mean, again, People get hit in the head not. and fall on the ground. He does not go down easy. Like, goes no, like, no, he's a pretty big dude. He's a pretty big dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Samson is like, just gets off and he's like, uh, uh, oh shit. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> yep. And then, <laughs> and from this point, we get like one of the best sequences of three jump scares in a row that's fucking uh, funny. Uh, where uh, Dewey's inside and the front door just kind of blows open and he's startled and draws his gun and then turns around as he's surprised by people coming in from the pool. And then yet another jump scare of Tom coming up behind him. He almost shoots Tom for crying out loud. Um, it, it's when the film's funny, it's funny. It's, it's, it's good. And then immediately he's like, don't panic. And then, or no, wait, no, that's after putty drops dead in the driveway, right outside the doorway. Uh, Dewey goes out, checks his polls. He's another convenient. Like this has been absolutely and again, Ghostface doesn't give them the kill. Like, I would have been, like, just leaving people still alive on the ground. Like, um, well, you know, he's got to fuck around with the house for the gas leak and everything else and deal with cutting out the lights and all that shit. So, yeah, Dewey's like, everybody back inside. They, he locks the door and he's like, don't panic. And immediately the lights go out and everybody screams. Um, and uh yeah they run out to the pool and we get that perfect 2000 moment of a cell phone going off and everybody checking because it's the same ringtone as everybody else has so it, these films are always perfect in the way they portray technology at the time that it is taking place you know, you had everything from the first two films. Hey, we'll get into it in later films with, uh, you know, streamers and everything else. Um, but yeah, th there, that moment in 2000, when everybody was just starting to 
like everybody was finally starting to have their own cell phone because it was not as much of a thing until around then. But yes, when a phone would ring, everybody would panic that it was theirs. It's perfect. Um, and then they realized, no, it, it, the fax machine's the fax ringing. Machine. Yeah. It doesn't have a ringer like a freaking cell phone, but I No, no, not at all. But uh, yeah, the fax is uh, starting to spit out uh, script pages describing the scene that they're in. Um, and they're all freaking out about that. Uh, they run outside. Except I, I, Tom, I spill on this as well. Like, Christ almighty, he's only in one sentence at a time. It's a bit bloody wasteful, yeah. no no he's got to draw it out it's got to be suspenseful mark come on um but uh yeah tom like 15p a pop you know (laughs) i don't think he's worried about that um but yeah yeah uh there there was a time back in the day when we were very concerned about you know sending how how many pages we were making as far as making copies or printing stuff out or sending a fax or the minutes that we were using on our cell phone oh it's a different world now (laughs) but uh tom the guy who's playing dewey in stab three uh you know he's he's a little drunk as we've we've established and he decides well he's gonna find out how this ends and he runs back inside to grab the page but he doesn't have a light source to really see what's going on and he grabs a lighter in the kitchen and the person well is something about uh you know the people that uh survive are going to be the ones that don't smell the gas or something like that because smell the gas the first person who smells the gas yeah something like well regardless because it's all like one person can survive and why how's the one person gonna survive and it's the the person who smells the gas first and of course he used the lighter to light up the page so he can actually read it and uh, he looks up and everybody looks at him and we have an explosion that's far greater than it has any right to be in this film. It looks awesome. Model. Yeah. And clearly models when it comes. Oh, to the house, of course, it, but it looks really great. Like it. it is like a pretty epic explosion and it throws them all kind of over the rail and down the hill. Uh, people are tumbling forever. Just endless tumbling. Banging their heads. Uh, banging their heads. Yeah. People getting their heads hit. It's, it's a thing that happens in this film. Yeah, it's very necessary for this film, for sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, they get flung down the hill. Uh, Dewey pops up, hears both Jennifer and Gail calling for him. He uh, looks down the hill some more, sees Gail down there. She's calling for him. And then he sees Ghostface pop up right behind her. Uh, he fires at him, saving her, and immediately falls down the hill again. Uh, this film is 90% hit injuries and people falling down. Um, so he gets down there. She's all right. They almost kiss, but then Jennifer pops out of the woodwork. Oh, and she's mad as hell. Uh, and, uh, she basically attacks Dewey for leaving her smacking him. Gail in turn punches Jennifer. And we get that lovely exchange of my lawyer liked that. And Gail saying not as much as I did. It's awesome. I love Gail. <laughs> she's kind of an awful person from time to time, right but she's also wonderful. With where it was shot, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that, that can't feel good either. Um, but, uh, no, but yeah. I mean, of like, 
just landed in exactly the same place as Ghostface had landed like two seconds ago. Right, <laughs> right. Got that camera shot set up, so I just reuse it. Or yep, and then <laughs> uh, exactly the same position, exactly the same. <laughs> yep. And then Angelina shows up from here and she's a little out of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, the other three had their suspicions about her. Cause you know, where the hell was she? And this I, is where it's probably also important to point out. They put six rounds or five rounds into the chest of ghost face here. Mm-hmm. And, and he's still got up and disappeared. Yep. Um, you've tried that once you've tried that once. Oh, they'll keep trying, Mark. They'll keep trying. <laughs> no, no, it, it's a horror film. They, they're just going to keep shooting him in center mass. Have to be told at the end to fucking do it. Like, yep, yep, yep. Don't worry, they make good in the end. Um, so yes, uh, this is where Dewey finds yet another photo of Marine Prescott that the killer left just before he ran away. Um. But on the back, it has, I killed her, written in Sharpie. Um, So down at the police station, the detectives, they're desperate to locate Sid as they feel that only she can unlock this mystery. Uh, But Dewey's being extra protective. He still doesn't want to, you know, give out her location. Uh, But this is where Kincaid threatens Dewey with obstruction of justice if he doesn't give her up. So finally, he walks out of the office to go make a call. And as he's leaving a message on her machine, this is where Sid walks into the precinct and uh, they have their cute little reunion. You know, like people traveling four hours, you know, we just have to, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's very possible that she had driven, you know, the night before or whatever, because, uh, or early that morning. Um, yeah, again, because she was clearly it's done with uh, 20 seconds of him facing the guy. <laughs> well, he did mention that that was the fifth message that he was leaving her. All so right. some time could have elapsed. But uh, yeah, they got their little reunion there. And um, she reveals that uh, the killer's been in contact with her. And uh, instead of staying in hiding, she just wants to help at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, he. Idiot. Yeah, Get, go yeah. to Italy. Go to Italy. Go sit on the Italian coast. Like, yeah, but but again, your friends are all going to die if you don't help. So you know, um, she's yeah, she's a trooper. So then if he's only after you, then they're not going to die because then you put. Oh no, he'll continue friends. to kill her friends to get to her. You know how these killers work, Mark. Um, so no, yes, she goes chasing her. Then everyone over in LA is fine because he's already killed her. He won't though. He'll do everything to bring her to him. You know how these people work, Mark. Come on. Uh, Also, just in service of the film, that's how it would probably play out. Um, But uh, yes, uh, Dewey introduces Sid to the detectives, and um, you know they they kind of wonder how they got her number, and uh, well, it may come down to Dewey's phone. There's that great really. Uh, do you have Sydney's phone in your memory? And he kind of looks up into the side a little bit, trying to remember her number. And he's just like, in your phone's memory, you fucking idiot. But again, cell phones, no, like, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, again, it's, although the cell phones used in this film look old as fuck compared with what we were rocking in 2000. I don't know. That's weird to me. But uh, regardless, it's, it's a funny little beat. And he's like, oh, yeah. And, um, well, who's 
ever used your phone besides I, you? And he says, well, Jennifer and Kincaid. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, Jennifer's clearly got me on that list. And probably everyone else. Yeah, yeah exactly. House. What the fuck? And he's living there and <laughs> well, he's out in a bloody airstream in the garden. Uh-huh. The trailer's rocking. Now don't come and knocking. Uh, Sid uh, sees her mother's photos on the walls and uh, she wants to see the studio where they were taken. Um, so yeah, they just decide to everybody let's go to the studio. Not let's put somebody into protection. No, no. We're just going to drag all these people out into the open and use them as bait. Go split up and go do different things. Yep. Yep. Uh, Because of course they're going to split up. It's a goddamn horror movie. And oh, do people split up later in this film. Um, But uh, yeah, enter Martha Meeks, Randy's sister, who has a message for them from beyond the grave. Uh, Here's where Randy lays down the rules of the trilogy. And I love the little beats of him filming this because he thinks he's probably going to die in the previous film. So he's doing this as a way to protect his friends down the road. Um, And just the little back and forth between him and his roommate, because he's locked him out to take the moment to film it. Yeah. It's it's funny. But also Um, like, have that be sent to them at the time of your death. Like maybe, yeah, you know, know, that information might've been useful before the shit starts happening. Like, so yeah, Uh, apparently he didn't get the opportunity to uh, put this in an envelope and send it out or anything. And I'm sure his sister found it as they were going through his personal effects after his death to find it when the killings start and all the rest. It's perfect timing. I don't know what Martha's doing on this back lot personally but uh is she just into this back lot i just it's just got our own office with a tv now exactly she shows up at the perfect fucking time but yes we we get the rules of the trilogy one the killer is going to be superhuman two anyone can die even main characters and three the past will come back to bite you in the ass uh and yes absolutely this this kind of shit does play out uh, except for really main characters dying because, well, you know, future spoilers. We people survive. Um, so make more screen movies. It was making yeah, the money. Well, <laughs> well, and and they really didn't until over ten years later. So eh, I don't know. Um, but uh, Gail heads off to chase down a lead, and uh, she runs into Jennifer outside the uh, studio's records office who wants to stick by her side. This great little exchange about how, you know, the killer's after me because I'm playing you, but he's really after you. So I'm going to stick by you so that when he kills you, he won't be killing me. (laughs) Yeah. And then Q walking up to this, is this where they walk up to the records office? And then we've got a really weirdly framed shot. Do you know why that is? That's because the prop guys got to put this card scanner for the door a good eight feet away from where the door is. And just on some random (laughs) they open the door and you see clearly it's not an electronic lock that is (laughs) just weird, like, not even right of it, like, weirdly into, like, halfway into this wall as well. So they have to frame this, like, (laughs) it is a little odd. Yeah. And this is where they run into not Carrie Fisher, um, who they brilliant. Yes. She's, oh gosh, she's so good in just about everything that she ever does. So, you know, 
God rest your soul. No, that other one had to sleep with George Lucas to get Yeah. Off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Almost got Princess Leia. Yes. Uh, and she's smoking like a chimney, like Carrie Fisher famously did. Um, and they bribe her into helping her and they track down Rena Reynolds, which was Maureen's stage name for those couple of years where she was doing schlocky horror movies. Uh, it turns out she did like three bit roles. Exactly who, where this was and who, what her name was and everything else. Yeah. Well, they do she mention that she has photos of this woman start showing up. Well, I don't know that photos of this women were being, you know, waved in front of Carrie Fisher here. Well, Sorry. About 20. Like, they're floating around that set. Like, no one's been. I don't know. I think she lives her life in this basement, you know, just chain smoking and, you know, waiting for random people to run through. You know, she's the, I'm sure she, like, the fact that she knew exactly who this person was and what name it was under. Like, hey, it took 50 bucks and a $2,000 ring to convince her to help. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. They, uh, basically get the information that, yeah, she was a bit player in three horror films that were produced by, uh, Lance Henriksen's character, Milton. Uh, and they move on from there. Um, where Sid's hitting the restroom and she finds Angelina hiding in one of the stalls where we get the reverse boots. Yep. Stepping up onto the toilet. Yeah. It's the reverse of the first film. With a knife, a ghost mask, and who's mm-hmm. yeah, basically everything you would need to be the killer. But no, she's just trying to, you know, take a few bits of memorabilia because she figures she'll never get a role like this again. Super, super so, suspicious. Like, an actress like that. Why is she wearing like heavy work boots? Like to no chunky boots like, like that were in vogue at the time, Mark. But, all right, okay. Oh yeah. So I, I don't blame anybody for wearing footwear like this in this or the previous two movies because big old Doc Martens were in vogue. Um, again, interesting fashion choices of the late nineties, early two. Like, so you don't look like the killer. Like just buy the red ones. Right. <laughs> yeah, but black goes with everything, Mark. Come on. Um, so, so yes, uh, the, she runs off and. Sydney kind of follows after. I think she dropped something or something like that. But Sydney was trying to chase after her. I think yeah, something like that. And she kind of stumbles onto the Woodsboro set for Stab Three, and she's kind of hit with the feels. And she goes off to explore the set of her own home, which is just meticulously recreated. Right? Um. Yeah, I think she does. I can't remember. Uh, my for my sure. comment at this point is why the fuck does everyone not have a pistol with a fucking flashlight attachment on it? <laughs> you know, you're going into all of this shit. Like, four that, like, that, twenty bucks for that flashlight attachment. Come on. Not man. super common <laughs> for like a concealed carry, Mark. Um, not super common. But these people, you splash it out for that extra flashlight attachment. I guess. But uh yeah, she's um of course, attacked by Ghostface on this set after we get all these fun little audio cues running through Sid's head from the first movie. Um, and they chase each other around the replica of her house. And he also uses her mother's voice here to taunt her. Uh, and she she basically dives out of a window trying to get away from the situation and lands really hard on the fake grass. Um, 
but this is where Dewey and the cops and everybody else rush in. And uh, nah, Ghostface is gone because, of course, he is. But you see her land and it's soft. You can see that, again, it's fake growth, whatever, and it's got my padding under it or whatever. So it's not. It yeah. You see, like, I don't know that that's necessarily that way to provide cushion, but more so to provide the illusion of grass on top of soil yeah. and not just being completely flat like somebody rolled out fake grass on top of concrete. No, but I mean, but, um, like, it's probably for the stunt itself. It's just left in from the stunt itself yeah. or whatever, but. Regardless, she lands pretty hard there. Um, and this is where Kincaid takes her back to the station for her protection. And then we get uh, Roman in uh, uh, Milton's office arguing with him. Um, and as soon as Gail and Jennifer uh, burst into the room here to um, confront him about Rena Reynolds, he sends Roman off. Uh, there, that evening was a planned birthday party for Roman. It's his 30th birthday, uh, at Milton's house. Um, and he's like, Hey, don't cut the cake without me or whatever. And, uh, but he wants to get him out of there because you know, reasons. Done what was it's implied. It's implied but that, it, uh, when Rena, because we, later on, yeah, we right. get into the story. Uh, you know, Milton talks about how. Yeah, he knows who Rena was because like a lot of young girls in the 70s, you know, he would have parties with, you know, big influential people at his, you know, big old mansion and girls would get passed around, uh, especially girls who were looking to advance their careers uh, via these methods. Um, so, yeah, it, I'm really surprised I didn't get cut considering who put out this film at this time. Yeah, at this point, the Weinstein's uh, kind of felt like they were untouchable, right? Right. So yeah, uh, they never thought that this would uh, be, yeah, more real than it is. Um, also, he's got like usual Scott. You know, he's quite high. His office is quite high up, right? Um, mm -hmm. Sealed windows, yeah. clearly sealed windows that he can't open. Outside of one of them, there is a diving board. That's fucking funny. You know, <laughs> yes. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's huh? I, I I absolutely buy it for this kind of a character because he's he's oh, yeah. portrayed as a, like a Roger Corman caliber uh producer, which is fucking hilarious because the other producer is played by Roger Corman. Um but uh yeah, this is where he just kind of spills the beans on uh you know basically what went on in the seventies. Um and we leave there and we get they back to knew, you know, I make some comments of like they all knew what they were getting into. Well, sometimes it went a bit like it was just like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and while she made some while she made some accusations, there were never charges and everything was ultimately dropped. It all feels way too real, doesn't it? Um yeah. Lance Henriksen plays scumbag really well in this film. You know, very like, believable. I don't know that he has any uh, history like that. As far as I know, he's a fairly stand up you know dude, I mean, but literally cooling out the, sh the sh <laughs> yeah, the shenanigans <laughs> that Weinstein got up to. Yes. Years earlier or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But again, probably felt that he was just totally untouchable. Um, 
So yeah, uh, we get back to the precinct where Kincaid and Sid, uh, you know, they're kind of talking about things. They're getting a little flirty with each other here too. Um, and they end up having a little heart to heart and they're super cute together. And he decides he's going to run off and search the set. But before he leaves, she asks him what his favorite scary movie is. And he steps back in, leans in super close to her and just kind of whispers my life. Okay. I, I understand you're yeah, a homicide detective and you've seen a, got a load of things. And we're already thinking that it's kind of implied that, yeah, from the other scene, I, I'm then getting in this scene that, wait a second, is he her or uh, her son or whatever, like with the way it was, oh, I've been brought around, like suddenly then throwing a load more of shit onto him there, but also like doesn't take his partner to go search the set, like because we see him out at the ball, like afterwards. So he just goes on his own, like, yeah, great idea, mate. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, well, they make the comment when he and his partner are walking through the production office earlier on in the film, how uh, usually the cops in movies like this, only one of them makes it out. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, honestly, both of them live. So, hey, win. <laughs> um, but yeah, he leaves. They have their cute little moment. Um, and this is where Sid uh, calls the gang back in their car, you know, uh, Jennifer and Gail and Dewey, uh, telling him that she's headed to Milton's house because he had something he wanted to discuss with her, and she'll meet them all there. And it feels weird because she doesn't say goodbye or anything, and she just hops off the phone, but they're like, I guess we're going to Milton's house. Um, and yeah, uh, they get there and Roman reveals that he never invited Sid. So we know exactly what's going on at this point. That was Ghostface uh, using Sid's voice. And uh, Roman's just getting leave. a little drunk. Just, just leave immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, they just so uh, come and get right. Okay. We'll go meet Sid somewhere else then. Okay. Yeah. But they kind of think that maybe she is because they still think it was her on the phone. So yeah, they, they just decide, Hey, we're going to hang out and wait for her. And this is where, uh, Roman and, uh, what's her butt decide, Hey, we're going to look for the screening room. And, uh, you know, the other two, they're like, we're just going to, everybody splits up. We've got, yeah, we got three different units and we're just going to explore this giant ass mount mansion. Um, yeah. where's this stuff? Like you see that size mansion, like, it's There's be a probably level. some kind of staff. You're probably right. You know, like, which well, clearly, maybe on night, you know. Mark, maybe on nights where they have the wild sex parties in the screening room, the staff, uh, they're sent home just so there's nobody that observes yeah, But this anything. wasn't meant to be a wild, well, I don't know. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? I don't know. But, uh, yeah. So, yes, uh, everybody kind of goes their separate ways. Uh, because that's what you do, point, right? Well, no, still in the office, no. Like, yeah. Well, he, he's not present in these scenes. Um, so everybody splits up because that's what you're going to do in a horror movie. And Gail gets suspicious about the situation. Like, how have they got into this bloke's house when he's not there? In, <laughs> just, just walk into this. Because Roman, well, like, remember Milton set Roman 
to his party, you know, basically saying, Hey, don't cut the cake without me. So it's, it's implied that Roman was going to be either setting things up or just there waiting. I don't know. But, uh, this is where Gail gets a little suspicious about the situation. And she asks Dewey to call the number back that Sid called from and a phone five feet away immediately starts ringing and they open up a cabinet or something. And there's a cell phone, a voice changer and a ghost face costume. Oh no, the killer's inside the house. <laughs> it's, which so dumb. Like, oh, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Right. Yeah, I, I'm going it's... straight down Apple with this shit. Like, <laughs> clearly, he kind of patented this shit. <laughs> yep. Let's go through this. I'm going to be set up for the rest of my life with this kind of tech. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and. For some reason, at this point, extras of this extremely complex, completely nearly. Oh yeah. Tech, but, hey, yeah. when you're this buying one, why not buy two? Yep. Yeah, and that's clearly set up to be found. Oh yeah, yeah. Just to make sure that everybody's suspicious of everyone else. Um. So yeah, uh, they discover this shit, and for some reason, Gale and Dewey decide that they're going to split up to find other the others, um, because by all means, at this point, yes, make yourself an easy target. Uh, Gale heads down to the basement, where she discovers Roman's body in this casket, and uh, Ghostface. You know, someone stands at the top of the stairs, like with the light oh, for fucking forever. Where the the other, well, he's down there, don't they? And it's just like there's a there's a lot going doing? on throughout the rest of this movie. What are you doing? Why are you standing at the top of the stairs? Like he just. Oh yeah, that was Jennifer when Roman went down there to poke around, and uh, yeah, when uh, Gail discovers his body, that's where Jennifer bursts out of her hiding place, and uh, they race off, scared as fuck. Um, and, uh, yeah, Ghostface attacks the group and everybody's running all over the place. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Gail and Jennifer discover Angelina popping out of a hidden passageway that she found. And when they all freak out, Angelina decides, Hey, fuck all this. I didn't fuck Milton for this part. She says to get killed along with second rate, uh, celebrities like you. And, uh, of course this is where Ghostface stabs her. And we get that awesome shot from the top of the stairwell where Gail and Jennifer are looking down and there's Angelina's body looking up and you see it dragged away. Um, that that's, that's cool. I, I like that one a lot. And um but also like there's a little bit of like could still be an accomplice. Could still you know, yep. be a setup of yep. what why was Ghostface dragging that body away? Like there was no certainty to do that if there was yeah. maybe there's something else. There's you there. know, yeah. there's probably theories out there about Angelina being um the second killer. That would not shock me, even though it's never explicitly said, even though it seems fairly clear. You know, if you're just taking this film at face value, that uh, there is only one killer this time around. You never know. You never know. It seems just way too convenient with her at certain points. Uh, again, I'm not saying it was within the film. I'm saying at this time, in point in time, seeing, you know, she dies away from them, you know, whatever, like, and then gets dragged away conveniently out of sight is like, mm -hmm. why have you just shown us that? Like, why, yeah. why would. Go like what's good like go you, you never see the body posed somewhere or done in a you know, 
Oh, yeah. There's no tableau or anything, is there? Um, like interesting reason to move that body. But also, this is where um, you know the girls uh, end up finding Dewey and Tyson and Ghostface. Even though he was downstairs, is suddenly upstairs, uh, and he's fighting with Dewey. Um, it, it's interesting. And I know there's secret there's passages all throughout this house. In the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're meant to believe he can get around pretty easily. Um, and uh, Ghostface uh, punches Dewey in the head, and he goes down like a sack of potatoes. He, uh, and then he runs after Tyson who's wounded, uh, and Jennifer finds a secret passage at this moment as well. Uh, so we get Ghostface chasing Tyson down this hallway and Ghostface just grabs the rug and literally rips the rug out from under Tyson. And he falls fucking hard on this wood floor. Tile. No, it's tiles, isn't it? I think it's like. Uh-oh, yeah. Tyson. Like, yeah. Which is going to hurt a lot more than wood. Like, Yep. And then uh, Ghostface basically throws him off a balcony and we don't see the death. We just see his body later on. But that 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 couldn't have been pretty. Um, as well already yeah he was already wounded yeah um but jennifer uh sees some of this happening and uh ghostface chases after her um and she's in these passageways and uh she's in one of them actually in the like just beside the bedroom where all this fighting had originally taken place she's behind the uh the glass um closet doors which are one-way mirrors and she's pounding away. It's also sound. Why? Yes. Yes. For, uh, yes. Um, he's probably been set up behind there more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Or just Milton on his own, just on his own doing things. Um, so ultimately, uh, she's pounding on the glass and they can barely hear her. But Dewey does notice the glass moving and uh, she's fighting with Ghostface and the the lines. I should have written down the lines that she spits out at Ghostface because they're fucking funny. Um, And uh, he starts shooting the glass, but it's too late. Ghostface is gone and she's already stabbed. Does aim for the top of the window. Well, that's the clever, the the, the, smart decision in this movie of like. Yeah, I mean, he like may play a little stupid, but he's not an idiot. He was a fucking cop. It's, you know, yeah, it's going to be just like, oh, shit, I'm just going to kill her. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, but uh, her body was just leaning against the glass and she's already dead. Wait and check each window. Go, oh, no, she's not there. Okay, next window. Oh, she's not. Next. Like, you could have just got a yep. quicker along those and it might have helped a little bit here. But, yeah. Uh, but she was already dead and Ghostface is already gone. Um, yeah, it's it's a shame because she was a fun character, but uh, and such an indie film darling at the time, too. Um, it, it was a fun get her being in this movie. Um, so, yes, uh, Gail and Dewey split up again at this point. And immediately Ghostface grabs her in the kitchen as soon as they part ways. Have we had have we had the call to the police station yet? I think they were trying to at this point. No, have we had no have we had where what's the faces get to the call where she's at the police station goes into the other room? Oh no, not yet. 
not yet. Um, but yes, uh, they kind of fight. He's got her grabbed from behind and, uh, she does the move where she kicks at the wall, but sends them both falling down those basement stairs and, uh, Ghostface is knocked out and, uh, she's, she's all right. You know, aside from just being, you know, tumbling down some stairs there. Um, but, but she caught at one point and then stop. Yeah. Me. Well, yeah, he's, he's a little out of it and it's like a reflexive stabbing, uh, motion. That's how I take it. Um, but, uh, and then goes down and then doesn't then motion completely motionless again until then he gets, uh, uh-huh. like, he, he did not take that fall. Well, um, but, uh, yeah, she's calling for Dewey and he's concerned cause the door, uh, went shut as they fell down. He's concerned that it's the killer on the other side with a voice changer. He, he doesn't necessarily believe it's her. And she's like, you know, open the fucking door or something like that. Until she's really shitty to him. And then, like, oh yeah. 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 Then he's like, okay, I'm going to take a chance. And he flings the door open and he sees Ghostface, who's awake again. And he goes to fire and he's got no more rounds in the gun. He's completely empty. And instead Ghostface throws the knife end over end at him. And this was in the trailer. I remember the butt of the knife hits Dewey square between the eyes and it knocks him out. And he heads down, you know, falls down the stairs again, people getting a hit in the head and falling down. That is this movie. Also Ghostface at this point has got to be pretty pissed off at London that way around. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh oh, things could have been a little, I know things could have gone a little bit more simply for him. I'd only been the other way around. Well, right. And like, <laughs> probably the, would have been the coolest killer of the bloody movie. Yeah, I guess. I don't know this, but, but it plays really well for a horror comedy for sure. Um, so yes, Dewey falls down the stairs and Gail goes to his aid and Ghostface brandishes yet another knife that he pulls out from his sleeve. Um, yeah, uh, back at the station. How is he not stabbing himself in the arms? Like, I think he's got. I think he's got like a little uh, uh, sheath, like uh, in this, either in the sleeve or strapped to his forearm. Uh, which I so would assume knife first. They don't they? Like when he pulls them out, they're actually like facing the right way. They should really be facing the other way if they're in a sheath. You'd be grabbing the hilt and pulling it out, and then it would be. But I think he, kind he of, did pull it out he by the hilt. Grab. Yeah, but he, he goes in and then pulls it out like that by the hilt, I thought. So it's obviously it looks better on camera, but it's like, yeah, if you've got yeah. them, you, you, know, you would have had them the other way around and you would just grab them and like that. You would have been a lot right. easier. So he has to like reach off his sleeve with his hand, grab the hilt, and then pull it out. So it's, yeah. yeah. Anyways, it works. He's got another knife. And this is where we cut to the station for the phone call that you were bringing up, uh, where she picks up the call and it's Ghostface using Sid's own voice. Uh, oh, also, the police are having a pizza party. Yeah. For some reason. I and, and everyone's just happy with some random person just being in, in the office with all of these, all this evidence and, and, you know, everything else. You know, they really should just completely. I guess. It. I guess that was Kincaid's call. I mean, he's the I mean, detective who's in charge. Office, you know? mm-hmm. 
But yeah, Ghostface is using her own voice to fuck with her. And uh, when he switches over, he uh, orders her to come to Milton's house. Um, she finds but be- a file in this as well, doesn't she? Yeah, be- uh, this was before she picks up the phone. This is Kincaid's file on her. And wow, does he have a shit ton of research done on her. Um, so that you know makes her a little suspicious of him, of course. Um, and now before she leaves to go to Milton's house, she's eyeing this bulletproof vest. And then yeah. she's also like, digging in the drawers. But then it also is like, oh, bulletproof. But like, so then the ghost face stuff later, like, it kind of undercuts that a bit. of like, well, A, you know, she's going to bloody have it. Well, these shots yeah. on it as well. But it's like, hey, there's that lingering shot on it. But then instead of her obviously going back for the vest, she instead digs through his desk drawers and finds a little holdout no, 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 piece. No, his desk drawers. Another detective, like she goes like to, like into another office, and a few just randomly, just some other detectives, because like that's his desk there, and like he goes through a door into another room with like three or four desks and picks the one like two away. Like, yeah, it's just some other detective, like just steals a gun from a police officer and walks out of the police station with the police. Well, officer and uh, that's. And that's one that's on top of the one that she brought with her from her house, um, which we are soon to find out. Um, but she grabs this holdout piece and then pieces out, you know, Ghostface told her, Hey, we'll call with instructions and when you're on the road. His, Cause he has one later. So it is yeah. definitely another detective. Again, he's okay. desks away or whatever. So, cause he uses his later on, doesn't he? So, yeah, yeah, I suppose he does. Yeah. Uh, so when Sydney arrives, Ghostface, uh, after forcing her to use a metal detector on herself and tossing away her gun, the one that she brought from the house. But doesn't make him, doesn't make her go back and do it again afterwards. Like. Right. Right. And that was her plan all along. You know, if she's got to reveal that she's got something on her, have a second piece on her that she doesn't throw away. I think that's pretty smart. But, uh, yeah, the she throws it in the pool. They're lying around just to set up and just to do this because you were completely planning. A, like this is like a- yeah. it's Roman's been thinking about this for four years, man. He's had time to plan. Um, oops, spoilers. Um, but uh, yes, um, she throws the gun in the pool and she finds uh, Gail and Dewey bound and gagged uh, as she's trying to get them free. Ghostface shows up and. Um, uh, she ends up gaining the upper hand by pulling out that hidden gun and fighting him off. But when she looks around again, he's gone because superhuman, right? Um, <clears throat> so to speak. Um, so yes, Ghostface snuck away and now Kincaid shows up and he gets his head slammed into the mantle of the fireplace and he's on the ground uh, from Ghostface because, again, hit in the head, dropped on the ground. Um, Sydney flees at this point, you know, after, you know, screaming at Ghostface, you know, motherfucker this, motherfucker that. Um, Starting to feel phases as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she goes and hides uh, in the secret screening room uh, where, you know, it's finally discovered. Uh, and... Um, she is unfortunately in there with Ghostface, who first portrays himself as her mother in a bloody sheet, which he, you know, pulls off to reveal, nope, it's Ghostface. And then it is ultimately revealed uh, that Ghostface is Roman. 
Yeah. But also, lock, um, it's a, uh, you know, and they show big lock, like steel bars go across, like hits it's a trapper in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The those... She came through. Right, right. Through the other door. Like, why have we got massive, like, safe, heavy-duty locks, but then a wooden door on the other door? Like, just a wooden screen door that you could just, anyone can just smack their way through like but no we've got because like, movies on the secret door like in the bookcase like no, that's got like industrial scent vault like fucking bolts on it but we've still got a yeah. door that you can get into this <laughs> yep uh but yes it is revealed that bulletproof vest is what has kept him going and it is indeed roman the director uh, and then he starts to do his killer talkie, 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 talkie thing. The whole reason for his uh, situation is that uh, he's actually her half brother born to their mother, Marine, when she was an actress in Hollywood uh, four years prior, he tried reuniting with her only for him to reject him due to being, you know, the product of likely rape back in the day um and it is heavily implied that it was indeed uh milton himself who was the father um bitter over the rejection no, no it's not <sighs> it's no it very much is i think it's completely not because he makes a point of saying and then they had their way with her like, it I don't know. He makes like, comments like, about how, you know, she made allegations against him, but nothing ever stuck. No, 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 no. She made allegations. He never says against him. Like, I, I think very clearly, like, in the, I picked up on it of like, he was, he passed her to the people that, then multiple people who then took it too far or whatever his words. I don't were. know. I he think he was pretty like, involved himself there. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not, I think the, the way he's, kind of said it he wasn't involved in a way that would have been able to you know, uh, lead to him well, being his child regardless uh bitter over the rejection guilt. i think it's more guilt and all the yeah. rest of it. he's kind of taking him under the wing i think yeah, okay, like that whole relationship and like because if he wasn't like how like he couldn't be as like because then would no one have asked about where the mother was also the timeline of two years like with a nine-month pregnancy and three films like that's suicide like and she probably she couldn't have been filming too many of those films when she was pregnant otherwise she probably like, did those films and was basically you know just trying to get something better at that point regardless uh roman's kind of bitter over the rejection and he began stalking her you know kind of filming uh her with all the people that she was hanging out with because sid's mom you know it was established in previous films definitely got around widsboro she was the village bicycle for sure um and we get some uh footage i wonder uh, why that is because of the trauma but <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah she was a messed up individual um uh, and we get footage from his stalking on a screen behind him um because of course screening room we got to use the projector right uh and we see her um meeting with billy's father it was and... not like it was a sheet though like it's also like projected like as opposed to under a flat screen which it would have been in a fucking screening room of that thing like there was like texture in this the, the, the shit i was projected on it was like it was not great quality like, it was not great quality like, it was like uh, no, this would have been a immaculate screen in a screen you know, like flat screen but 
but I don't know. Maybe it was the original one from the seventies. But uh, that said, uh, it's revealed that Roman was the one who has originally motivated Billy and Stu to kill Green. What they did there was they they shot it and they did it with the screen, and then they were like, "Just looks a bit fake." And like someone was just like, "Let's just hang a white sheet into it so it gives it a bit more texture." Because you you can see the screen behind it at one point. Well, um, yes, uh, yes. Uh, Roman was the one who ultimately started everything rolling. He got Billy and Stu to uh, kill Marine, and ultimately that set off a chain reaction with everything that happened in the events of the first two films. And uh, yeah, here we are. Uh, and when he discovered how much fame that Sydney had uh, amassed due to everything, he kind of snapped and decided to find a way to lure her out of hiding and, uh, you know, find a way to ultimately get his due. Um, but this is also like five years after she's become famous, right? Because there's been the second movie in between it as well. Like, yeah, I mean, it's implied really that all this stuff happens in fairly quick succession. He talks about, you know, him going to visit his mother four years prior to the events of this film. All right, okay, so it's four years, yeah. It. Yeah, because the original was in 96, and then the second one, although, you know, the film was released in 97, it's implied that there's a bit of a time jump. It's a couple of years later. Um, so I don't know if Sid ever finished college, honestly. Um, who knows? But, uh, you know, that said, um, after he he ends up killing uh, Milton. The plan is to frame her as ghost face and oh, yeah. be the one that saved the day. But he hasn't set up enough there so that anyone's going to fucking believe that. Like he's found mm. like over Sid's dead body. Like, you know, he planted the evidence of her voice on Milton's answering machine and all this other shit. Um, but this and he covered a, his own tracks. Knows well. there's a fucking voice changer in play by this point. Like, like. Yeah, but he's going to make sure that everybody knows that it's a voice changer that can replicate other voices. Because uh, they they make it clear that they didn't really understand that the voice changer did other voices until Gale and Dewey find that voice changer late, late, late into the film. So he's just going to make sure that everybody's dead and he's the one that stopped her. But this is where he ultimately slept alive to, to then be like, oh, yeah, he's like to verify his story. He can't be the only person alive. Like, well, he's going to use the voicemail that Sydney left as that verification that she was the killer. That's that's yeah, his whole I play. I don't think anyone's buying it. It's like his house and whatever. Like, well, he is a crazy person. Yeah, but I mean, he needs to, he needs to do a bit more setup there to actually like he's doing he's you know he's planned all of this like it felt like he kind of left the hey the breadcrumb trail leading to Sydney being the killer like well, a ultimately bone there like put yourself in the place of like if that doesn't work you're getting immediately arrested and like everything over like i don't know he, he seems to think that his situation is fairly airtight uh and this is where he brings he out um, his, his plan is to kill her and it be known that he killed her so mm -hmm. then, like you are admitting to him. <laughs> yeah like yeah stopping her and basically saving the day 
Yeah, I don't know. But uh, ultimately, this is where he brings uh, Milton out. And, uh, you know, Milton's like, I'm getting, I'll give you your film, whatever you want. And he's like, nope, I already have final cut. And he slashes Milton's throat. Great line there. Um, and this is where, you know, uh, he, he whines and whines and whines about, um, uh, you know, his mother's rapist and the whole situation and how, you know, he's, you know, she went off and left him alone and Sydney got all the life that he always wanted. And Sydney just, you know, is like, Oh, grow the fuck up at this point. And, uh, you know, basically tells him that, you hey, know, that hey, I fucking live in some fucking like, like hut in the middle of the fucking woods. Big Hollywood film person, like exactly. Essentially, she's just trying to provoke him as well to you know just let let's make some shit happen here. Oh, woe is me! I'm a massive film director or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they fight all over the place. They're constantly tripping each other, and people are falling into the ground and hitting their heads because that's what you do in this movie. And uh, ultimately, he gets the upper hand. Yeah, and uh, people are getting their bells rung left and right. Um, and this is where, uh, Roman gets the upper hand and he shoots her in the chest. She goes down, he stands over and shoots her one more time in the chest thinking the chest. that, yes, thinking that, uh, he's done what he needs to do. And meanwhile, while all there's this no shit blood. is happening, like, there's no blood on that first shot. Like no, clearly no, like, and she kind of turns over after the second shot too. Um, and while all this shit is happening, you hear Dewey and Gale from outside the room trying to find a way in. There's all sorts of banging and crashing and all this other shit. Um, they, they, they don't try and like pull on the, like there's a walk into a room with a bookcase with where most of the books, books are gone. Yeah. But don't start thinking about trying to pull at the books that are there. or just like going on the shelves that are already been like messing around on the shelves. I know that are being cleared. We, we said they were smart, but we didn't say they were that smart. Um, so yes, uh, he's distracted by all this. And then he turns back around and sees that Sydney isn't there. And, um, yeah, yeah. Eventually, uh, she, oh, uh, what's his butt? Uh, Kincaid comes in here and, uh, after picking the lock and, uh, gets his ass handed to him again, uh, and while, uh, all this distraction is happening, Sydney pops up behind, um, Roman and stabs him a couple of times. And when and he's no, he out pops up first, grabs the, the nice beer, the nice Bartles. This is probably one of my, I was like, Oh, I like that bucket of Bartles. They look very nice Bartles. <laughs> yeah. But uh, she rather a nice, um, ice pick. Yeah. Yeah. She stabs him a couple of times, uh, around the neck. And when he's on the ground, she says something to the effect of your movie stab three, isn't it? And stabs him one last time in the chest. So what's her play here? Like, um, her play is that everybody else is alive who are witnesses to everything that was going on. And they are people that will back her up. But ultimately this it's is where really, Dewey like, it's an unnecessary action that she say, like she goes and then she goes for the heart or whatever. Like it's like, yeah. it but uh, we've had moments know, in films prior going heart when she, she already knows that he's got a bulletproof vest on at this point. Like, why yeah, are you him in the, the fucking vest as well. Like that's going to be so much harder. to stab If it goes it. all the way in, 
vest doesn't matter. You're good. But uh, we get the moment where Dewey and Gail finally burst into the space and uh, they realize, oh, my God, it was Roman. And as he's lying there dying, she uh, grabs his hand and holds his hand as he um, dies. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a touching moment. Um, in the chest. Now you want to hold his hand? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and after maybe you know she gets up, whilst he's doing that, maybe maybe just you know stick a quick finger on the the thing and just make sure that the post make sure the job is done. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she steps away from Roman and uh, she talks with Dewey and Gail a little bit, and uh, this is where Roman pops up behind them because of course you have to have that final bit of the killer coming back. <laughs> completely superhuman completely completely superhuman right and dewey takes a no that's what makes him superhuman right but uh ultimately he's got to come back for that last scare because it wouldn't be a movie like this without it dewey takes kincaid's gun and starts unloading into his chest and he just keeps charging forward and they're shouting at him over the gunfire in the head in the head he finally hears it in a break in his firing and puts one last round in between his eyes and roman's finally down for the count fuck but again, he's 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 he shot him in the chest previously and it had no fucking effect yeah and she knows that he's wearing a bulletproof vest he at this point effectively. he, he doesn't, doesn't know but he'd already shot him in the chest and he but if he's still charging at you while you're continuing to hit him center mass you would think he would know exactly like like after the like the fourth bullet like maybe try something new this isn't working for you yeah well finally he hears them and takes care of the situation um yeah yeah finally killing him uh and then we cut to what is probably a few days later superhuman because again, like, no, he's not, he's not, but, yeah, but again, definitely. it's falling into the tropes of, you know, what Randy's laying down. Right. Um, so yes, we move on from here and it's clearly a few days later. We're back at Sydney's, uh, compound. Basically the gang's all there just hanging out. Um, and we get, uh, Dewey and Gail on the front porch and they're watching Sydney, uh, you know, come home after a walk with her dog and, you know, they're talking about how she's doing and so on. And he's got a copy of Gail's book and, you know, he, he'd like a signature, he says, and she's like, Oh, come on. You hate this. This was like one of the biggest bones of contention in our relationship. And he's like, just sign the damn book essentially. And she opens it up and it's all hollowed out for an engagement ring. And it's super sweet and doofy. And, you know, they're like, this isn't going to work, but you know, he'd like to try really unearned as well. Like in this movie, yeah. like there was no real, like whatever, like the, the, the there were moments where they were coming back together and then things interrupted that. Um, and then you have yeah, the previous films as well. Hey, here's an engagement ring. Would you like to get back together? <laughs> it's a bit of a step up. It's, it's very two thousands, Mark. Come on. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she accepts and, uh, they kiss and because again, they're cute as hell together. Let's be fair. It's never going to work, but they're cute as hell. Um, so Sydney kind of throws the gate open wide, sort of symbolizing that, you know, 
things are, she's okay to live in the world again. Right. And she comes back into the house. She doesn't set the alarm. Uh, they talk about how they're going to watch a movie together. Mark, the detective for some reason is there. Um, you know, he's got his arm in a sling and everything, but he's just kind of convalescing with them, Hold I guess. The popcorn, like yeah, cause, like, yeah, because they're all going to watch a movie together for some reason. So she doesn't set the alarm uh, as she did previously in the movie. And when the wind blows the door open, and as the wind blows the door open, she just lets it be. You know, she's, she's ready to move on from all of this. You know, she's thinking that because the person who basically set everything in motion is finally dead, life can move on and she can finally live. So, I mean, good for fucking her. She deserves it. <laughs> yeah, but also, what about the air conditioning? Like, like, you're just air conditioning the outside at this point. If it's Northern California, they're not bothering with air conditioning. I think it's implied that it's Northern California. Uh, I think they're fine. Um, but yeah, uh, she just kind of leaves it be and we go to credits. Oh, so That's not it. secured the dog. Then she's left the front door open and the gates wide open. Like, this is clearly a dog that's never on a leash and always wants to hang out with her. It's always around her. Come on. Whatever. But uh, yeah, that's it. Credits. That's Scream 3. Well, it no, is. No, no. But the the credit end song starts before the credits over the like the happy like whatever like as it. Oh uh, yeah, they always have to do the shots of the cast as their characters. Yeah. No, no, no. What I mean is the music starts before the credits start, like the creepy mm -hmm. music, and it's like we've got this happy scene, happy scene, like whilst it's still on, whilst the visuals are still on the screen, you suddenly start getting creepy music, and you're like. <laughs> yeah, but they don't do like the previous two films with the uh, the final stinger of uh, Ghostface appearing before you know the credits or anything like that this time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it just felt it just felt like you could have let that have its breath and then have the credits stop and then play this creepy song so it has some delineation. But they start it over the over the um, like looking at the window and it's it's just like. Yeah, it's mostly like the sound of the wind chimes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's Scream 3. It's campy as all get out. And I think that's what actually makes the movie work. Um, I don't know. It's my second least favorite Scream movie. <laughs> no, it's like, huh? The, the second film is my least favorite Scream movie. This is my second least favorite Scream movie. Out of all of them? Okay. I yeah. Mean, some of the newer ones and all the rest of it. And I can't even remember the other two. So I can remember the first one fairly, but that's probably more say, from scary movie. And like, yeah, <laughs> it's just like being done on the, I mean, I've I've shot over this film like quite heavily. <laughs> There's plenty to pick apart. I totally oh, enjoyed it. It's a very enjoyable film. It's, yeah, it's on your toes all the way through. It's very good at like a load of like suspicion on people. And, yeah, you know, well, that's where these screen movies really excel. It's all about the misdirection. It's all about the red herrings, and they do a great job making you think, "Hey, it could be Angelina. Hey, it could be, it could be you know anyone. Jennifer." Yeah, it, definitely the detective over and over. They're making it seem like he could very well be a killer. Um, that's that's awesome. 
I, I, I've always loved that about these films and just, again, the use of technology with the exception maybe of the unbelievable voice changer, but, uh, you know, it's still fun. I think at the time in 2000, we would have felt that that's something that could be believable, but, uh, you know, in retrospect, see, um, and then we see Disney and all the people like doing these, these aging and de-voicing and all the rest of it. It's not as good as that fucking voice changer is. Nope. <laughs> not at all. But, uh, yeah, man, this, it's a fun movie. It's, I, I, I keep joking about people getting the head and falling down all the time in this movie, but seriously, every single person seems to have this happen to them at one point or yeah, another like, throughout the film. Smallville. It's a smoother one of like, Hey, we need to keep people like everyone can't be seeing everything. So we need to have people knocked out quite a bit. So that uh -huh. like, there's actually that they then don't know that that person isn't definitely isn't ghost face because we then you then see the two people in the row right yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all everything's really convenient and oh but, yeah but it's all in good fun I, absolutely I, 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 i'd watch this and i had zero idea so i couldn't really remember anything other than jazz i robber in it but um so yeah he kept me on my toes which i thought was yeah which is what what more it's got some great scares in it yeah, what more could you um, ask for really yeah it's there there are some things that uh you know our modern sensibilities are like ooh yeah no maybe not so much but uh but you know no, it's, mean, it's it is a 23 year old film but it's calling all of that shit out way before it is. anyone else was calling all that shit out it's like yeah pretty much on the side of like oh this is really like oh well it was okay like in the 70s or what like implying that it's not okay then either as well and like right it was it, it does yeah. Yep. Again. And again, Weinstein clearly thinking that he was too big to fail, right? And being totally okay with this playing out in this film. <laughs> to be honest, he probably never watched it. <laughs> you're 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 probably right. Um you're probably right. But uh and it, yeah, was, man. It, was it was definitely Bob that phoned up Kevin Smith and asked him and then repeated and said please do this. And he was like, oh, I'll talk to Jay. And then if Jay wants to do it, I'll do it. You know, and Jay was like, money? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it was just a fun fucking day as well. I mean, why? why well, and he got $300 in a t-shirt, which he was really. Yeah. <laughs> Hell, I'd do that for $300 in a t-shirt. I'd do that for $100 in a t-shirt, man. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, this, this movie's a good time. Um, do I think yeah. that the first one and the subsequent two films are better? Oh, absolutely I do. But uh, that is a topic for another time. Mark? Uh, what? They don't have Jane Silent Bob in it. <laughs> <laughs> that may be Mark's final th thought on uh, Scream 3. I was just about to ask, Mark, what are your final thoughts on Scream 3? <laughs> That's about it, huh? You should have, you should have cut the episode there, Jack. But yeah, yeah. Enjoyable. Maybe I will in post, and we'll just have a test pattern for a second. Yeah. But yeah, this movie's a good time. It's uh, it's definitely a film from its time period, but it's a good time nonetheless. Well, Mark, I appreciate you coming on again. It's been almost a year. And honestly, by the time this thing posts, it will be almost a year since I started this podcast. 
So I, I, I appreciate your encouragement all on. I appreciate your participation. There you go. We, we got to figure out which one that'll be. Uh, cause this was, um, I may have flubbed in the beginning. It's, I think it's 26, but, uh, it may not be, uh, I'll, I'll double check, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll figure something out for that. You know, just to say what it could be. Could it be some more Kevin Smith? Could it be more Kevin Smith adjacent? Just to say, but, uh, Mark, if you'd like, where can people find you? At the Indie Boy one on Twitter and Instagram, but on the Zooms, etc. Go support Joe. Don't worry about it. <laughs> make sure you like and subscribe if you're not already onto here. And it's always appreciated. This yeah, yeah. Really it's um. That's the oh well, only thank reason you for I that. come and do this <laughs> is to support support cool people doing cool things. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. Um, but this has been Murders with Mertens, a horror film podcast. Thank you for letting us tickle your ear holes. Please like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. I'll be back soon enough with another episode. But until next time, stay spooky.